Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, بَعَدْ أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ وَقَالَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لَوْ لَا نُزِّلَ عَلَيْهِ الْقُرْآنُ جُمْلَةً وَاحِدَةً And those who disbelieve say, why wasn't the Quran revealed to him all at once? Why not just come down in one shot? كَذَلِكَ لِنُثَبِّتَ بِهِ فُؤَادَكَ وَرَتَّلْنَاهُ تَرْتِيلًا So Allah Ta'ala responds and says, thus, this is the way that we may strengthen thereby your heart. And we have spaced it distinctly. Allah Ta'ala is telling us something very powerful, very important here. That I did this with a particular wisdom. To let the Qur'an come down incrementally. Why? What is the wisdom behind this gradual revelation? Well, one reason is because when it's revealed incrementally, it answers and responds to circumstances and different questions that are asked. And so, this applies to us as well. Instead of rushing through our reading or our memorization of the Qur'an, we should embrace taking our time and asking ourselves how it applies to our circumstance. Take your time with the Qur'an. Read slowly. Try to take lesson by lesson and ask yourself, how does this apply to me right now? What is Allah Ta'ala telling me in this moment? We know that the gradual revelation made the Prophet ﷺ interact with his teacher, Jibreel more often. And this is something that we can take a lesson from as well. We should enjoy and embrace the gradual learning of the Qur'an. Why? So that we can spend more time with our Qur'an teachers. We can ask more questions, we can learn, and we can spend more time with our fellow students. The Prophet ﷺ says what? That deliberation is from Allah, rushing is from shaitan. What does this imply? When you want to do something that's important, this idea of doing a rush job, it's a bad idea. We all know that's how mistakes are made more frequently. And specifically with the Qur'an, when you rush with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when you rush with the Qur'an, this means, indirectly, that you are busier with something else. Think about that for a second. Take a moment to appreciate that. What is so important in your life that you need to rush your time with the Qur'an? When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking to you, when Allah ta'ala is teaching you lessons of life, what is so important in your life that you need to breeze through what Allah ta'ala is saying? Take a moment to appreciate just how wrong this feels and how we know this is the wrong attitude to have. Furthermore, we know that it took the Prophet ﷺ 23 years of receiving revelation to memorize this Qur'an. So if the Prophet ﷺ was receiving this Qur'an over the span of 23 years, why are we rushing so much? You know, some people, they say, oh, maybe I'll join a Hibs class and I'll finish the Qur'an in one year or two years. MashaAllah, if you can do it, I'm not going to stop you, it's beautiful. That being said though, why is it that, oh, if I don't finish quickly, I don't want, don't want to do it at all? The Prophet ﷺ was receiving over the span of 23 years. That means all the Sahaba were receiving it as well over the span of 23 years. So, what does that mean for us? We can take our time. You say, oh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm kind of slow. That's okay. Take your time. And furthermore, some of us say we're too old. I should have started when I was a kid. I should have went to Hibs class, classes when I was young. Yes, that would be nice. But at the same time, let's not forget that the Prophet ﷺ received this Qur'an it began the revelation at what? At the age of 40. 40 years old. Wasn't a kid, wasn't a child, like many of us who do their hits classes. No, at the age of 40, that's when the revelation began. Not finished, began. So none of us should say to ourselves, oh, I'm too old for this. No. At the end of the day, whatever age you are, let's take our time. As they say, slow and steady wins the race. These are all introductory ideas, but the main idea that I want to talk about today, inshallah, is what? Is that when we pay attention to this reality that the Qur'an was revealed over time. We recognize one major factor. This is what I want to focus on the most.
The major factor that I'd like to focus on is the fact that Allah Ta'ala has certain surahs that were revealed in Mecca and others in Medina. Or you could say more accurately, those that were before the Hijrah and those that were after the Hijrah. Now, the Prophet spent 13 years in Mecca receiving all these different, what they're called, Mecki surahs, right? A surah al-Makiyyah, let's say. Then, when he made the Hijrah, then from then on, 10 years of receiving, what? Madani surahs of the Qur'an. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, what's the difference? And what can we learn from this? Well, the fact is that since the Prophet was in Mecca, receiving Qur'an, receiving Allah's words, these words, obviously Allah Ta'ala knows who his audience is, therefore the speech is directed towards who? Predominantly non-Muslims, and predominantly as well, you could say, predominantly non-Muslims, and then as well, new Muslims. That's the audience of Mecca. I want you guys to memorize this, okay? It's very important for the rest of the talk that you remember. Mecca Qur'an is focused on who? Is focused on non-Muslim audience, as well as new Muslims. Good. Then the Prophet makes hijrah, and now in Medina, who is the audience here? Predominantly Muslims who are established in their own community. Established Muslims. They've been practicing for a long time. They have their own community. They were living with the Prophet Established Muslims. This is very important because when you pay attention to the surahs that are Mecca versus the surahs that are Madani, you see some very distinct differences. And it, there's many lessons we can learn from these differences. So let's take a look at them. What are some of these differences? Well, the first one that I like to talk about is when it comes to Mecca surahs. Again, this is for who? Predominantly non-Muslims and predominantly new Muslims. You find that the emphasis is on faith. Imaniyat. What does that mean? Tawheed. Who is Allah? The names of Allah. What are his attributes? Angels. Prophets. Talking about who? Judgment day. Resurrection. Heaven. Hell. Reward. Punishment. Imaniyat. Establishing. Making firm these beliefs and understanding. Who is my creator? Why am I on this earth? Life is a test. I will die. I will be resurrected. There will be a reward. There will be a punishment. These are imaniyat. This is the focus in Mecca. Contrast that with the focus in Medina, which is more on what? Worship. Ibadat. Focusing on what? What are the rules of salah? Of zakah? Of fasting? Of Ramadan? Uh, fasting Ramadan? What, is, what are the rules with regards to hajj? You find that this is the focus. So what are the lessons that we can learn when we see this differentiation? between focus on faith and then focus on worship. The lesson is that we must build the foundation of our faith first, then build our practices on top of that solid foundation or else those practices will crumble. So the question that I'd like to ask all of us is what? How do you introduce Islam to a non-Muslim? I've asked this question to many different audiences in the past and I've heard countless times Muslims say, oh me, when I introduce my non-Muslim friend at work, at school, colleague, neighbor, whatever, I usually introduce and I talk to them about the five pillars. And I say, yes, that's exactly wrong. <laughs> no offense. But unfortunately, talking about the five pillars is not the Quranic methodology. Why? Because you're talking to them about rules. That's not the way you're supposed to introduce according to this Quranic model. You're supposed to talk about Tawheed, the oneness of Allah Ta'ala. The foundation, who is Allah Ta'ala? Number two, you're supposed to talk about Nubuwa, the fact that Allah sent books and messengers as guidance to humanity. And number three, you're supposed to talk about what? Al-Akhirah, the fact that you're going to die and be resurrected and judged and there's going to be reward or punishment. When we introduce non-Muslims to Islam, we don't list a bunch of rules and obligations telling them, oh, 
you can't drink this or you can't do that or you can't have this boyfriend or girlfriend or you can't have this. Just listing a bunch of rules. You have to change your life and you have to you know, look like this and act like that. You're not supposed to just establish a bunch of rules. Why? Because they don't have the basic foundations of understanding yet. Rather, you want to tell them who is your creator, what is your purpose of life, what is guidance, and ultimately, where are we going? These are some of the main aspects you want to talk about. So a very important lesson. Point number two. What is the difference between Mecca Qur'an and Madani Qur'an? You find that a big difference is that Allah Ta'ala is teaching us what? That in Mecca, to these non-Muslims or to these new Muslims, the subject matter revolves predominantly around what? Morality. General morality. Good conduct. Be a nice person. Be good. Take care of the needy. Pay attention to the orphans. Addressing the crime of female infanticide, which is you know, burying their daughters. A'udhu Billah. So these are aspects of morality that were being there general and broad, and they're considered ma'roof. What does ma'roof mean? Ma'roof comes from arafa, ya'rifu, which means to know. Ma'roof means known goods. Ta'murun bil ma'roof, you call to that which is obviously good, known goods, clear, something that is undebatable. Be a good person, be kind, take care of the needy. These are things that are obvious, and these, this is what's focused on in Mecca. Then when the believers moved, to Medina and establish themselves as a community. Now these, these are seasoned Muslims. These are Muslims with experience and they are more uh, uh, well-grounded in their faith. Now you find more emphasis on regulations. The difference between morality, general goods, versus regulations. Governing laws like warfare, like family law, like marriage, like inheritance, like hudud, the legal uh, punishments when people commit crimes. These are the things that are emphasized in Medina. What are the lessons here? As I was mentioning, Allah Ta'ala tells us in Mecca to a non-Muslim audience, to new Muslims, you talk about that which is ma'roof, well known to be good, and munkar, that which is obviously evil. That which is, munkar actually means rejected, disavowed, disowned, reprehensible. Things that nobody could defend. You want to highlight these aspects in our society. Things that we need to, that are obviously good we need to embrace. Things that are obviously evil we need to address. And then, once we're on the same page about general good and general evil, then we can get into the specifics of regulation. You guys see the difference here? The difference between morality and regulations. I'll give a simple example so that everybody can understand. Before there were such things as speed limits, I'm sure here on these, you know, back in the day this was all farmland, right? Maybe some little roads and so forth. People would probably drive whatever speed they wanted, and the general advice was what? Just be safe. Be a safe driver, right? But then eventually, the whole concept of be safe, which is generally good advice, people would, you know, maybe, you know, khutwa the shaitan, you know, maybe I can go a little bit more, maybe I can do, maybe just a little bit more, maybe a little bit more. You push the limits. And so, eventually, a society needs to go beyond just the general advice of drive safely to now saying, okay, no, we have certain limits, 65 on the highway or whatever the case may be. So, the question that we need to ask ourselves is that we can see that there's a graduation from a vague concept of right and wrong to a system of regulations to ensure social cohesion and an adherence to moral principles. So the question I want us to ask is, in your own personal life, do you feel that you've graduated from the vague to the specific? Some Muslims, unfortunately, have been Muslim for so many years, and yet they still treat their deen very vaguely. I'm a good person in general. Sometimes you may ask a person, you know, do you pray? And I don't pray my five times a day prayers, 
But you know, I make dua often. My heart is connected to Allah. I mean, I'm generally a good person. That would have been good in your first week as a Muslim. Maybe in your first month. If you've been Muslim for 20 years, this idea of, you know, I vaguely pray, I make dua every once in a while, that's not going to fly anymore. You're supposed to graduate from the general concept of being good. MashaAllah, it's good that you make dua and that your heart is connected to your Lord. That's beautiful. But you're supposed to graduate and then say, no, no, there's actually a prescription. There's a way to pray. There's timings to pray. You're supposed to move forward in your life. This can also be addressed when it comes to your wealth. You find that some Muslims, I mean, I'm charitable. I try to give to the needy. Yeah, that's good, again, for your first week, for your first month, the beginning of your Islam. But now that you have been Muslim for many years, have you graduated to understanding the ahkam and the rulings regarding zakah? You owe a certain amount. Do you know how to calculate it? Do you know what you owe? Do you know how to go into your bank account? I'm not saying that zakah is all you owe, in the sense that, yes, that's your obligation. You can go more than that if you'd like. But you should know what is required of me. What are the regulations? I'm supposed to graduate from just the vague concept of I pray sometimes to no, there's a way you're supposed to pray. You're supposed to graduate from the vague concept of I'm supposed to be, you know, generally charitable to the concept that there are obligations upon my wealth. And this can apply also to even married couples. We're nice to each other. We got a good relationship. That's great. I'm very happy for you. If you and your spouse feel that you guys treat each other well, that's wonderful. That's a great starting foundation. That being said, though, do you know each other's rights and responsibilities? As a married couple, do you know this? Do you care? Or have you been Muslim for years and these aspects aren't even in your purview? You're not even paying attention. Where's the development? Where is the progress? SubhanAllah, this is the Qur'an, how beautiful it teaches us to develop as Muslims. So point number one was about what? Establishing faith. Then that faith has to move you towards ibadat and action to worship and knowing how to worship properly. The second one was about what? General morality. Ma'ruf munkar. You know, things that are obviously good and obviously evil. Yes, now that we're on the same page, now let's get down to regulations. You're supposed to develop as a Muslim. What's next? Point number three. Regarding the past nations. We know that in the Qur'an, in Mecca Qur'an, where the audience is predominantly non-Muslim and new Muslims, Allah Ta'ala talks about the story of all these prophets and teaches us human nature through history. Teaches us about Nuh alayhi salam and you know, him debating and discussing with his people and his son. Ibrahim alayhi salam discussing with his people and his father. Musa alayhi salam discussing with Fir'aun, the authorities and so forth. Shu'ayb alayhi salam, Hud alayhi salam, Salih alayhi salam. We're learning all these stories of prophets. But then, you find that in Madani Qur'an, there seems to be a shift. Now, it's more specific to current-day Ahlul Kitab, the, corrupt, the corruption in their text, exposing the mistakes that Bani Israel made that are relevant to us, how we could be following in their footsteps, how they played with their regulations, and how sometimes Muslims may fall into those same traps, how the Nasara, the Christians, they played with their aqidah and their beliefs, and how we as Muslims, we, we are in danger of going into excess and falling into their same traps. So you see this from the general Lessons about humanity and corruption, and then to the specific of what is around us today. For example, Ahl al-Kitab in Medina, there were many Jews, there were many of Ahl al-Kitab, and there were debates and discussions. So what is the lesson? The lesson is that after grounding your understanding of human nature through our knowledge of history of all these past prophets, which we should have, we have to bring those lessons into our current context to understand the specifics of what the people of the book believe, and practice what their book says, how to engage with them, and how to be convincing. So the question I have for yourself and myself is what? You may know that the people of the book 
have gone astray. But do you know how we as an ummah are falling into some of those same mistakes as well? Do we learn those specific lessons? Right? What are we asking for? What are we asking? Oh Allah, I need refuge from these same mistakes. This needs to be studied. You may know that the people of the book have faults in their beliefs and in their practices. But do you know how to discuss to make their mistakes evident to them? To prove through their own scripture this is what it means to graduate to the next level. Do we as Muslims, especially here in this country, where we're surrounded by Ahl al-Kitab, do we have that same attitude to graduate to the next level so we can discuss on their level? Point number four is about warning different groups. You find that in Mecca Qur'an, Allah Ta'ala is warning the polytheists from their shirk, because that's the audience. And then you find in Madani Qur'an, Allah Ta'ala is warning the munafiqeen, the hypocrites, from their hypocrisy, from their nifaq. Very different. And how should the believers respond to it is very different. You find that the believers in Mecca are told to be patient with the persecution because they don't have any other options. Whereas in Medina, when they are established, they're supposed to be aware of the plots of the munafiqeen, of the hypocrites. Defend yourself from the polytheists. Fight back and establish yourself because you have the means to do so. Now, how can we apply that to ourselves? This difference between knowing the uh, threats of the mushrik, the polytheist, the disbeliever, versus the munafiq, the one who appears to be Muslim, but still wants to corrupt your faith. Let me give you an example. In our context, let's say, if a non-Muslim were to walk through these doors, come in, let's say a group of them were to come in and say, listen, you people need to change your beliefs, need to change your practices, you need to change what you're preaching from this pulpit, what you guys are talking about is no good, how would we reject, react? We would reject, obviously. As Muslims, we say, listen, that's not your business, we're Muslim, you're not. We would reject their suggestion. However, when a fellow Muslim says, look, in the masjid, please only talk about these certain things that I'm comfortable with. Don't talk about the things that I'm uncomfortable with. Right? What's our reaction? See, now, as they say, the call is coming from within the house. Now, it's coming from someone who, mashallah, knows the vernacular. Now, it's coming from someone who maybe got the beard, maybe got the thobe, right? Says, inshallah, mashallah. Yeah, habibi, you know, we have to use hikmah, yani. we have to use wisdom, mawizah hasana, we have to give good reminders. But what if it's the case that this person is saying, for instance, let's say this person has a business that's haram, making haram money. Brother, I'm a Muslim too, and it's not wise, it's not wisdom to be talking about financial issues from the pulpit. You're going to make people uncomfortable, you're going to make people leave the masjid. This is no good. You should leave these aspects alone. You know, you want to make the Muslims feel good, call them to something good, call them to good character. Call them to pray, call them to charity. Come on, brother, you shouldn't talk about these things. Now, is it so easy to resist? Both people, when the non-Muslims walked in and said, change your message, we knew very clearly, hey, we don't change our message. But now, when the call is coming from within the house, and it's decorated in the veneer and in the vernacular of Islam, and the person knows all the right Arabic words to sound perfect, mashallah. But the message is the same. The message is the same. How do we react? Those efforts are obvious when they're from non-Muslims, but when the call is coming from within Muslims themselves, it's harder to tell. But if in the end, the goal is the same, to either add, or to subtract, or to distort anything that has to do with Islam, we should be able to tell the difference, regardless. It's hard, it's not easy. Sometimes a person is not criticizing the message, but the method, which is fair. The truth can be presented in a beautiful way. The truth can be presented in an ugly way, and there's lots of room in between. So it's very hard to tell. What exactly are you promoting? Are you saying change the message? Or are you saying just improve the style? 
This is when things get much more difficult. This is how the believer has to graduate. This is how the believer has to go from that which is obvious to that which is a little bit more subtle and pay attention and see what exactly is being asked here. And the final and fifth point, inshallah ta'ala, I'll mention the second khutbah. The final difference between Mecki Qur'an and Madni Qur'an. Mecki Qur'an you find is short, succinct, very powerfully worded. Which makes sense. If it's to a non-Muslim audience or a new Muslim audience, then what do you want to say? Speak quickly, short, powerful, packs a punch, gets the point across, and then you're out. Makes the person think. Whoa, wakes them up, shakes them up. Makes sense. SubhanAllah, so much wisdom in the, in the Qur'an. Then what do you find with Madni Qur'an? The verses are longer. There's more details. What does this mean for us as Muslims? That do we only listen to lectures that are short, clips? Do we only listen if the lecture is funny or emotional or somehow clever and theatrical? Or have we graduated from that to a point where now we can read books, watch a whole lecture series, take classes, take notes, etc.? You guys see the difference. As a believer, you're not supposed to remain in this state of, oh, I only need, need that which is short and quick. You have to graduate from that and develop yourself into somebody who has more depth, inshallah ta'ala. And so these are these five points that we learn from, subhanAllah, not even just the Qur'an itself, but when you take a step back and look at the meta-narrative, if you will, or take a look at the entirety of the way the Qur'an is laid out, subhanAllah, there's so many lessons for us to learn. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us of those who can develop our faith, and then that faith translates into worship. May Allah Ta'ala make us of those who can develop our general morality and become stronger in our general morality, but then let that translate to what? Knowing Allah's rules and regulations. May Allah Ta'ala make us of those who can learn about the history of past nations and then know how to give da'wah and call to the people who are from, let's say, Ahlul Kitab around us. May Allah Ta'ala make us of those who can not just manage the doubts that come from non-Muslims, but can also be discerning enough to manage the doubts that are coming from Muslims themselves. And may Allah Ta'ala make us of those who can graduate and develop from having short attention spans to having a longer attention span to learn in-depth knowledge of our deen. May Allah Ta'ala always make us of those who can appreciate the layers upon layers of wisdom in this Qur'an.